0: Happy are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is put away. This opening verse from today's psalm reinforces the uncomfortable theme that connects all of the readings on this first Sunday in Lent. Uncomfortable because it raises the challenging question of what is sin? And we need to understand it before we can be forgiven for it, right? when you think about it we don't spend a lot of time talking about sin in the Episcopal Church. We're more comfortable talking about God's love or social justice or our work in the world than we are talking about sin. Put another way we're more comfortable jumping to the resurrection and skipping over the cross. But today's readings collectively force us to go there. It is an appropriate way to start Lent considering we're supposed to use Lent as a time for reflection or repentance and and eventual forgiveness. So we need to talk about sin and its dark corollary, evil. I realize many of you came from traditions where sin was a weekly, if not daily, topic of conversation and concern. And I hope I can heal some of those wounds. Understanding and acknowledging our sinfulness is necessary to redemption. Resurrection does indeed follow the cross. Easter unfolds after the darkness of Good Friday. Now one definition of sin is, is, quote, any word or deed or thought against the eternal law. Now not surprisingly, this definition comes from St. Augustine. And no discussion about sin would be complete without some reference to St. Augustine, his own issues, if you will. But I find this definition is not very helpful. See, it kind of presupposes that we know what eternal law is, which might have been more common knowledge in the fifth century, but I think it's kind of lost in our modern culture with so many laws and so many rules. A more contemporary definition that I found is from theologian Serene Jones, and she defines sin as a state of unfaithfulness where humans live against God's will and do not live into the wholeness or goodness that God intended. Do not live into the wholeness or goodness that God intended. So we sin when we choose not to live in God's plan for wholeness and goodness. Our flourishing. I think this is a more useful place to start, which leads us to today's Old Testament reading from Genesis, and it's kind of the original word on sin if you think about it. How might we read it with a lens to God's plan for wholeness and goodness? Well, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, which is the very definition of wholeness and goodness. But they're not put there as bystanders. They have a purpose. We are told that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it it and keep it. And a more literal translation would read that Adam is to serve and protect the garden. Adam and Eve have work to do. God gives man a purpose, serve and protect God's creation. And it's easy to overlook our description of our purpose and focus instead on the events that follow. But it's worth pausing for a moment to reflect on this statement of purpose, the very purpose of of humankind. What does it mean for us today to serve and protect God's creation? God's creation being the creation around us, our neighbor, ourselves. Where are we falling short? Where are we being unfaithful? Where do we sin? Now, we know that in the story, the newly created Eve and and Adam are tempted by the serpent to do the one thing that God has forgiven, to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The one thing. This is the first act of unfaithfulness, the one that sets the stage for all the acts that follow. Now, Augustine called this the original sin, and its effects are so profound that we are still feeling them today. In fact, he claims this act of obedience so warped Humanity, that all our base instincts are likely to be grounded in Eve and Adam's original sin. And it's only God's forgiving grace in the person of Jesus Christ that allows us to climb out of that sinkhole of sin. Now, that's a little drastic, but it does raise the question without original sin, is there a need for the incarnation? If we are inherently good, called by God, what then is the need for Jesus? Now, in what way is Eve being unfaithful to God's will? How does she set the pattern that prevents us from wholeness and and fullness that God intends? I think it's nestled in the crafty serpents' appeal to her. He says to her, she will eat from the tree and your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve's unfaithfulness is thinking that she can be God. She thinks she can know the difference between good and evil. And as you know, it's only a short step from knowing the difference between good and evil and thinking you can call certain things good and evil. That's God's work, not ours. How much of our modern discourse is about sorting out what we think is good and what we think is evil when it's really not our job? But you can see how Eve and Adam's original error can still affect us today. Adam and Eve know good and evil, and the first thing they do is realize their nakedness. Their bodies, which is God's creation called good, become a source of shame. And I think this is yet another way that they're being unfaithful to God's will. Our bodies are good. And as you know, it all goes downhill from there. Eve and Adam's error is twofold. First, disobedience to God's will. He gave them one thing they weren't to do. Among the many gifts in the garden and they disobeyed that one thing. See, God's grace doesn't come without some limitations, some work that has to be done. And second, they think they can have God's power. The lust for power fuels their appetites. Just look at the central language describing Eve's consideration of the fruit. It's described as she saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desire to make one wise, how could she not eat from it? Any and all rationalization needed to justify defying God's limits, to gain their own power. The crafty serpent feeds on humans' natural lust for power, and Adam and Eve fail. And today's gospel is the counterpart to Adam's fall, Jesus' temptation in the desert. Now this is our first introduction to the adult Jesus in Matthew following his birth story and his baptism. So it tells us something very important about Jesus' character. Now he's in the desert, which is the opposite of Adam's Eden, and has just completed his 40-day fast. I imagine him weak and delirious from no food, and he's in a place of great danger in the wilderness. And the tempter comes to him, as crafty as the serpent was with Eve. And again, tempts Jesus with illusions of power. First, power over the elements so Jesus can take care of his hunger. He can make stones into bread. Then power over harm so he can save himself when he falls. And the final temptation is telling. It's the illusion of power itself. So he can be king and lord over all. The devil repeatedly tempts Jesus to test to what extent Jesus will let God be God. And unlike Adam and Eve before him, Jesus overcomes all these temptations. In doing so, he defeats the devil in the desert and begins to mend that great fissure that accompanied the original sin in the garden. See, he doesn't bite on the devil's illusions of power. He sees through them. Jesus overcomes earthly power with what might be called the power of love. Love for the Father, love for humankind. And if you've ever felt the power of love, you know that it comes with great strength and also with great vulnerability. Nothing can cut deeper than a love that's not returned. It's a self emptying, vulnerable power of mutual love that is the source of Jesus' strength. And it's the source of our strength, too. Arguably the greatest modern sin is the abiding myth of the self-made man or woman. None of us are self-made. It quite literally takes a village as many parents here will confirm. But this myth prevails. We worship at the feet of the many self-made men and women. We even believe that we can be the sole architects of our own fates. Karl Barth calls these illusions the sins of self-sufficiency. And autonomy. When we fall victim to these sins, we duplicate Eve's original sin, thinking we too can be God. That we have the knowledge of good and evil and are happy to judge based on this knowledge. That we don't really need God or our neighbor, we can do it ourselves. And a near relative of the sin of the self made man or woman is the Western idea of individualism it is our great sin that we have all we need to achieve our goals. We can do it all ourselves. I learned this week that there is no concept in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke, of the I that is separate from the we. There is no idea of an individual apart from the neighbor. See, Jesus would have no understanding of an individual that is separate from the collective, from the group. He wouldn't even have the words for it. And perhaps that's how the devil is tricking us today, by thinking we are individuals apart from the collective. As masters of our domains, we create our realities or try to and maybe find a place for God if it fits. You see, Lent is our chance to reset those controls, to drop our illusions of autonomy and self-sufficiency and let God be God so we can begin to feel what it's like to rest into the fullness and wholeness that God intends for us. The fullness and wholeness that is God's will. And ironically, it starts by letting go, by realizing that we don't have to work for God's approval, God's love, because we already have it. In fact, because of God's love, we're free to be what, we can true, what we're can what we truly meant to be. We can flourish, but we flourish on God's terms, not ours. Now, Dr. Jones, who I mentioned earlier, who gave us the idea of sin as unfaithfulness, goes on to describe the seven ways we're prone to sin, and this is sort of her version of the seven deadly sins. And it's interesting, it provides a surprising landscape for sin and the unexpected places where sin can be found. I've already talked about the sin of pride, with illusions of autonomy and self-sufficiency, but also there's the sin of misunderstanding our essential goodness. We are children of God called good And we sin when we think our bodies, our minds are somehow bad or evil. There's the sin of sameness, not recognizing that diversity of all kinds is God's work and will. There's the sin of isolation, where we cut ourselves off from God and our neighbor. The sin of misunderstanding our nature as sinful, that we aren't inherently good. The sin of misusing our freedom. See, she claims that sin can be so pervasive that we can become accustomed to it, so we forget it's sin. So, for example, being comfortable with massive income inequality in our society is an example of being sinful, of falling into sin. And lastly, misusing the covenant of sin. When we fall into legalism and use scripture as a weapon, we sin because we forget that God is, above all, a loving God. And if love isn't present, Chances are it's a sin. I don't expect us to remember all these, but I think that what ties them together is where we're separate is the chance for sin. Where we see separation between us and God, separation between us and our neighbor, separation between us and ourselves if we don't love ourselves and see ourselves as, as good. Those are chances for sin. Sin is a part of the human condition. After all, we're not Jesus. We all fall victim to temptation. But Lent is a time for us to reflect on our sins, those we we have committed and those committed on our behalf, and to seek repentance. You see, God already knows our shortcomings. He's just waiting for us to realize them ourselves. And he's already ready to forgive. Let's just let him. Amen.